Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that is raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solace, and with me, as always, is my very, 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 very talented friend who has mastered making sense of my nonsense, the mixtress DC Gina. <laughs> Hi, Louise. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? You know, I'm just, you know, ready to... That's bringing, I don't, I don't know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, feeling jelly today. Cocktail-y? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that you're in the, I guess we're in the right spot doing the right thing then, huh? Yeah. So, you know, hanging out in uh, last, last call. call. Doing our designated drinker thing. That's right. All right. So speaking of acts of genius, Gina, you know, the human body is a beautiful, wacky, mysterious machine, right? Yes. That was hard to say. Um, sounds like I need, need another cocktail or maybe not. <laughs> Well, it's really easy for us to forget just how amazing our bodies really are. So I have a few fun facts to remind you. Let's do it. Gina, do you know your heart beats about 100,000 times a day? Which not means- real. I mean, I didn't, I mean, I get it. Yeah. When you do like the heart rate, but yeah, it, not really. So yes. what that means is that it sends about 2,000 gallons of blood through your body. Wow. That's pretty crazy. I mean, if you put some gin in that, I'd be okay with that. Keep going. <laughs> and when Neil's around, I'm sure it flutters many more times. Or stops sometimes. <laughs> you know, you never know. So here's a little bit more for you. Your body has more than 600 muscles. I think I knew that. And your strongest muscle, and I hope I say this correctly, is your masseter muscle, which is located in your jaw. Shocking. I know. Hard so yours must have a workout. <laughs> Mine's uber strong Um, (laughs) because I chew up these scripts pretty badly. Um, And your weakest muscle is actually inside your ear. It's in the middle of your ear. Now, the average human has anywhere from 2,000 to 10,000 taste buds. And I'm going to bet, Gina, you're probably closer to the 10,000 range. I'm sure. And then if you're the typical overachiever that you are, you would have more than 10,000, which would actually make you a super taster. I only know one super taster. Do you? Yep. And she can't drink alcohol. She can't have salt. That would stink. And it's amazing. No, it's amazing. But her palate's insane. Yeah. It's insane. But she can't, does she have full appreciation of things then or are they just over the top? No, she can, she can taste, every, I mean, she can taste things that you can't taste. It's yeah. insane. It's just cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. So speaking of taste buds, brings me to today's designated drinker. He is a man of many talents, a chemist, an entrepreneur, a sensory expert who has mastered the art of tasting himself. He is none other than Dr. Hobie Wedler. Welcome to the show, Doc. Tina, Louise, how the heck are you guys? This is awesome. Let me tell you, uh, better than I'm a designated drinker than a designated driver. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, we, uh, we Uber in and out, you know, play it yeah. smart, never do something. Yeah, got to be responsible. Absolutely. So let's jump right in, Doc. I want you to tell our listeners about your program, Tasting in the Dark. But first, can you tell us how you became a sensory expert? Oh, man, I'd love to. Thanks so much for the question. So um, for those of you who don't know me, I was born completely blind. Um, no, no eyesight, uh, microphthalmia was a condition. And you know what's interesting is my parents had no idea uh, that I was that I was going to be blind. They really didn't know that uh, this is going to be who, who their next son was. And... Um, you can imagine as two-sided folks who don't really know that many blind people have a blind son. Um, imagine the shock that would bring it, and it brought them some sh- shock as well. But what they did is they had super, super high expectations of, of me and, and what I could do and who I could become. 
that was largely driven by my mom's good friend, Barb, from college. Uh, about 12 hours after I was born, my parents decided, oh, I guess we should call our friends and let them know that, that Obi was born and, and he's healthy, but he's blind. And so my mom picked up the phone and, and tried to call Barb. This is 1987, so we're not talking cell phones here, we're talking landlines. <laughs> and, uh, you know, rang the phone and, and Barb's husband, Steve, answered. And Steve could be heard saying things like, oh, no, oh, that's so hard. Oh, what are we going to do about this? You know, all of these things that, that really didn't um, necessarily ha- have the same sort of, sort of like, thought of, oh, okay, he's just blind. You know, that, that yeah. went off to my parents and Barb being the kind of person who really wants to know what anything is going on and grabbed the phone out of Steve's hand and said, tell me what happened? Obi was born, but this sounds scary. What happened? And my mom said, yeah, he was born, but he's blind. And Barb said, oh, blind. God, we can deal with that. I thought he was dead. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> to me, that's like the exact thing. It's, oh, blind, we can deal with. Dead is harder. So if I ever write a book, it's going to be called It's Better to Be Blind Than Dead. But um, <laughs> Good old Barb. Well, I'll tell you why Barb had that opinion of blindness and that, that totally open, okay, we can totally do this attitude is because um, her father's best friend was blind. So her father was a psychology professor, um, didn't do much with his hands. You can imagine us typical academics. I don't have my corduroy jacket and my leather elbow pads right now, but you know how we look. Um, And her her dad's friend also happened to be a professor, but uh, was a total handyman. And he was blind. uh, I don't know if he was blind since birth, but he was like, he did everything around the house for... um, that's Everybody, amazing. You know, he was that that's what he did. So didn't matter that he was blind, fix the dishwasher, work on electrical, work on plumbing, all this stuff. So Barb grew up knowing a totally successful blind person. And I'm sorry, you asked me to describe how I became a sensory expert. Yeah, we are getting a 20-minute <laughs> explanation. But um No, I love it. One thing led to another. And uh my parents said, Okay, blind, not that big of a deal. And um really, I think more than almost anyone else who I know uh, treated me with exorbitantly high expectations. And when I say anyone else I know, I mean other blind people I know. So they they just embraced that fact that I was blind and, and it wasn't a big deal. And uh, I was held to the same expectations that my sighted brother, who's two years older, was held to. So it was like, no big deal. I would do everything, I'd do everything myself. I had my chores, they might have been a little bit different than my brothers, but I was held to the same high standards and uh, we were taught to work really hard as kids. So my parents taught my brother and I two things. One, and many more than two, but for here, I'm just gonna mention (laughs) the two that really matter, which are have high expectations of us, meaning them, my parents, and we will have super high expectations of you guys. So the bar was never lowered for any side, number one. And number two, it was this notion that you got to take responsibility for yourself. You know, this is your life to live and you get to decide how you do it, right? How you live it, what, you know, what you do, how you connect. And if you succeed at something, gosh, you should be credited for that. You should, you know, deserve to take the credit. And if you fail at something, well, we're sorry to say, but you should take the blame. It's your thing that you failed at, right? You decided to do it and you didn't do it so well. So, Oh, well, you know, it's just life, right? And super interesting for me is that I know a lot of 
a lot of blind people who sometimes blame those who assist them. And um, I was never and still will never do that. If something, you know, if I work with an assistant and something goes wrong, that means that I wasn't as good as I could have been at explaining what I needed to my assistant, right? Or Absolutely. explaining what happens. So like everything is is my thing. If it's good, it's it's great. I'm excited. If it's bad, it's oh, that's my problem. But okay, I guess that's okay. Um, so you know, one thing led to another. I was raised uh, as as uh, just a, a person. You know, that's that's all I was as a person, like anyone else. And um, fell in love with chemistry in high school based on a really excellent instructor and my just love for knowing how things work. When you turn the water on, water comes into the house. Whoa, when I was a four-year-old, that was crazy. And I spent some time like learning about that and made my parents take me down to the water re- uh, treatment plant and learn how that works. And, you know, one thing and another and another. And uh, and there we go. Off we go. So it was uh, it was quite interesting how that all how that all happened and how that all panned out. And uh, yeah, I ended up going to the University of California Davis, uh, studying organic chemistry because I wanted to teach, or at least I thought, had the honor of teaching a couple of graduate classes while in graduate school. I luckily, as in addition to being an academic, have always been an entrepreneur. I've always loved just sort of running businesses. It's been in my blood. It's been in my veins since I was a young kid. I remember when I was seven years old and I had a business uh, taking out and pulling in trash cans on garbage day for all our neighbors. You know, and that was my thing. Wow. It was what I did. I would have hired you. <laughs> I have two little girls, six and seven. I'm like, can you help mom bring in the garbage? They're like, no. <laughs> I'm like, they're like, mom, it's gross. It's dad's job. And I'm like, well, dad's at work and we have to bring them in. And they're like, no. So I would have hired you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. That, that gives me confidence. Thank you. Um, and, and, you know, for me, like entrepreneurial business is, and uh, being an entrepreneur, entrepreneurship in general is like so not about money and power. A lot of people when they hear, oh, he's an entrepreneur, they think he's like a money hungry person that wants to have power in this world and this sort of thing. And to me, man, that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm lucky if I have my bills paid at the end of each month, right? (laughs) To me, entrepreneurship is using a business entity to solve a true problem. And- um, Absolutely. You know, it's about thinking of where we come from and, and how we do things and what is the most inclusive way for everybody. And I, I really try to think of everybody when I think of inclusion to solve a problem. And how can we make whatever we're doing as accessible as possible for as many people as possible. That's what is truly uh, important to me and powerful to me. So that's what I live by. That's what I try to do on a, on a day-to-day basis with the businesses I run. I um, realized that I love my senses and I love being literate in my sense of smell and touch and taste particularly. When I was young and my parents would hire me to make large pots of soup for them and then freeze them because they wanted lunch that they could take to work. They didn't want to have to go out every day and purchase their food. So they literally had me make uh, soup. I think my my uh, my best birthday gift was a, when I was, I don't know, 14, 15, it was a 10 gallon soup pot, stock pot, right? <laughs> so that was, that was my job. I mean, we went through lentils, minestrone, um, bean, black beans, black-eyed peas, split peas, you name it. Like, there's so many different soups 
And I got really good, I must say, at making soup and had a really good time putting flavors together. And I kind of thought of it as a game at the time. And, you know, people would say, oh, what does this taste like? Oh, tell me what I'm holding up to you, you know, this sort of thing. It was a game. For me, it was learning. And it was literally assigning vocabulary words to aromas and flavors. And to me, flavor is all about being literate and having a good vocabulary and tasting Angostura bitters and saying, I taste the bitters, right? What is that? What is that flavor? Yeah. It's a vocabulary word. It's bitters. It's a memory. That's it. That's what I'm all about is that, is that flavor is a language, right? Flavor is just vocabulary words for things that we taste and smell. And I didn't know that I was so excited about this, but I also have a love for wine because I'm from Sonoma County, which is one of the wine, best wine-growing regions, I think, in the United States. And I took a couple of wine appreciation classes at the University of California, Davis, which is where I went to school, um, not really necessarily knowing that my career would revolve around, around wine, or at least started wine. Um, when I got a call through a friend of a friend from Francis Ford Coppola and his wine team at his winery in Geyserville, California, which is uh, about an hour north of where I grew up in the town of Petaluma. And uh, Coppola's team said, you know, we know that you're, you're really into using your nose. We've heard about you or however, you know, my, my friend and says, listen, Mr. Coppola attended an experience in the dark in Asia. He wants to make it much more authentic and offer it at his winery in Geyserville. And it's a deep sensory tasting, you know, where we seat people down and really have them experience wine. Will you host these for you? Can, can we offer you a position on our team? And when Francis Ford Coppola offers you something, you say, absolutely, that sounds amazing. And then you hang up and you say, what did I just agree to? <laughs> or did I just get punked? You're like, yeah. oh, is that really him? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So I was like, okay, this is, this is interesting. And, and Francis is an amazing man and really let me, I was going to co-innovate the experience with him, but he really let me innovate it. And it was designed as a whole experience where we blindfold guests and let them smell. Uh, well, first of all, we have a conversation. To me, there's nothing like a great conversation where we connect and we talk and we, we figure out who each other are and we talk about how wine or spirits or whatever the case may be, is an art. whatever we're going to be tasting is truly an art form because every food and every beverage is an art in, unto itself. We talk about how you don't need to see to absolutely love life. And we talk about how flavor is totally subjective. We make it from our experience and from our culture and all these things. And then we do this thing that I call calibrating the aromatic vocabulary, which is really smelling different, different samples that are similar to things we might smell in the wine that I prepare ahead of time. Saying, okay, that's lemon, that's vanilla. We smell anise, we smell oak, we smell all sorts of things that might be in the wines that people are tasting. And then we sat down and we tasted through four to six wines, all from that Coppola portfolio or whatever portfolio I'm working with now. And we taste and we think and we smell first and talk about what we smell. And we taste and we talk about what we taste. And only after we've done a deep analysis of that wine, do we let guests reveal what color they think it is and finally what varietal they think it is. And what I would say is that it's absolutely amazing how few people 
you know, they, they look at wine and they think, oh, I know what a red looks like, I know what a white looks like. Well, we put a blindfold on, we take away the safety net and it becomes, you know, what do you taste? What do you experience? And even seasoned professionals have been known to uh, mistake a red for a white or vice versa. That's amazing. The Francis Ford Coppola sales team picked up on this, called me, and uh, we built a program on the road. Uh, starting with with Safeway and training their wine stewards, and uh, then brought that out, you know. And I was actually kind of was really excited to serve as um, wine educator of, of record for the Coppola sales team for many years. During this whole process, I was able to bring the concept of blindfolded experience to other industries, and that's what I do as a consultant right now. Yeah. We work in beer, we work in spirits, we work in all sorts of food, we work in drink, you know, wherever we are, we do a lot of sensory design of, of spaces, sensory design of products, you know, all sorts of things. That's amazing, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I did, I did a dinner once in the dark before where I was a guest and I got to sit and eat and um, it was in Chicago, actually, yeah. and it was very, very cool to describe it. One of the things that you said was, you know, what is taste, right? You're like assigning, you know, different um, words, vocabulary, right? To me and to most people in the industry, taste is a memory. Yes. And that's why everybody, everyone says it's never a wrong answer because your memory could be of that boiling soup, like you said. Yeah. Um, and, like, and you could say, oh, my grandmother used to make chicken soup, but she put thyme in it and you'd smell the exactly. thyme. And then all of a sudden you're trying a different cocktail and you're like, it's grandma's soup. But really what it is, is the memory of that aroma. Oh my God. Um, it's really cool that you said that. And also, I don't know if you know this, but I'm sure you've heard it along the way. Um, they say, show me a cook that can make soup and I'll show you a chef that can run a restaurant. So soup is, soup is the telltale sign of of um, the difference between a cook and a chef. <laughs> Thank you. I have not heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Chef, it's um, it's actually from, um, I believe it's Escoffier that said it. Wow. But soup is one of the easiest things to fuck up. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, and, and it's because you think it's so uncommon. It's so, it's so whatever. It's water, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. But it's not. It's, it's, um, no, you've never had my mother's cooking, and her soup definitely was just water and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, it was I, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, like, I feel like um, I love that. And I also love that you went to a water treatment plant because I think when I, I make cocktails, and the number one thing I'm always concerned with, every space that I ever take over, do, consult on, make cocktails, I always taste the water. I always taste their ice. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter how good my drinks are. It yes. would ruin my cocktail. Absolutely. You're speaking my language. Yeah. Nobody listens when I say, if you're making beer, if you're if you're making drinks, if you're washing glasses, don't do anything yeah. until you taste the water. Yeah, no, I agree with you. you got to taste the water. Water is everything. It's interesting. All right, so I have a question. Where did you grow up, if you don't mind me asking? You said you said Sonoma County? Totally, yes. I grew up in Sonoma County, uh, right at the southern tip of it, called in a town called Petaluma. So were you on a well, or were you county water? Interesting question. I uh, was on city water. Terrible. But my parents love filtration. Yeah. And my dad, when he built the kitchen, like, I think before I was born, spent so much time looking for the perfect filter. And found it and it's not a reverse osmosis it's actually a really nice charcoal filter uh still the one that i use now it's called a multi-pure and uh no chlorine in that water 
I love that. And what's funny is I'd go over to my grandma's house that was half a mile away, and I'd drink her water, which came out of the tap. Oh, what is this pool water? You know, it's chlorine. <laughs> I was going to say Sonoma County has terrible water, but they make great wine. So maybe you got to like, so maybe you have to water your crops <laughs> with chlorine and then you have great grapes. Maybe that's, I don't know. Maybe that's oh, a ticket. Huh? That's the ticket. Well, I mean, sometimes you put sulfur in yeah. the soil to, to trick the Pinot Noir. So that's why it. not? I don't hey, know. You guys, you guys are in DC. I know you're both in DC. Also terrible water. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I, I've tasted the DC water. I don't love it. But honestly, my partner, my life and business partner, Justin's family is from Norway. And what's really interesting about the Norwegian water, when you turn the water on, and I'm so excited that we're nerding out about water because that's like what I, <laughs> it's just my jam. Um, when we turn on the water in Norway, we can smell the earth that it came from. And what I love about D.C., and in particular if you go north, like up to Baltimore and, and, and on into Maryland, you can smell the earth in the water when you turn it on, especially when it's hot and coming out of a shower head. And I love that aroma. Huh, that's more northern Maryland. I know exactly what you're talking about. I have a well, and um, and I live in New York. Well. I'm on a well now. I, I moved from the city, and I live in um, uh, northern Maryland. And my water, I love our water. Um that was the first thing when they told me we're on a well. I'm like, can I taste the water before we buy the house? And they're like, why? Absolutely. And I'm like, just want to taste the water. And we have um, our, our land that we're on has a lot of quartz in the, in the soil. Mm -hmm. And apparently quartz is a really great uh, way of like cleansing. Filtering. Free, but really? Yeah, I don't know. Our, where our, our, our water is underground. Our aquifer is it's a little bit below the water table and it's really amazing. So, wow. So I have, oh my gosh. So the only thing that I have as a purifier in my house is, um, I have a softener. So, because there is, there is sure. a lot of, um, I have a lot of mineral content. Would you chip your tooth if you didn't when you uh, drank the water? Well, you know, you know, it's funny. <laughs> it doesn't really do much to you, but it destroys your faucets. Oh. And your laundry totally. and your clothes. Oh, I got it. Yeah. And by the way, your wine glasses will never be buffable yes, again. Yes, they're etched the glasses. Like, yeah, all of that. Oh, interesting. But now yeah. I have this amazing softening system and I have a brain on it and it tells me when you need to add the salts and all this stuff. So like I, I play water all day. I'm going to make a cocktail. Let's, yeah, make, let's a cocktail. make a cocktail. All this talk about liquid. If you guys want to do another show on the chemistry of water softeners, you can invite me back. I'd love to do that. <laughs> uh, <I'm kidding>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Gina, I have a question before we make a drink. Yeah. I, and we need to like, I need some education here. Okay. Because like, I know wine really well. I know beer really well. I, I know spirits because they make me well spirited and I like to drink them, but I don't know all the options available. So you, you mentioned bonded bourbon and I found a bonded bourbon and I understand the laws of the, you know, the eight, of the seventh, the uh, 18th century. Yeah. And, um, you know, the whole the whole point of that and what that, like, we, we, you know, bottled and bonded needs to be done with the same, that distilled by the same people's bottling, um, made by the same, you know, grain grown in a certain region, this sort of thing. So I, I get that. So w w why bonded bourbon? So bonded for us, for, for like to really just like consumer level on that is 100 proof or better, right? You want something that's, it's barrel. So basically it's from one uh, source. It's 100 proof. And the reason why you're doing that is because it's a sweeter spot in the distillation process, right? Mm. So, so when something comes off the still and it's coming off at, um, you know, still proof, right? 
and you're at the highest you could possibly be, you're adding water to dilute it. Well, you're adding different flavors from the water and you're changing what you're gonna put in the barrel sure. from the still. So I personally love my whiskeys somewhere in the 100 to like 114, 119 range, because that's where I taste yes. like all of the different grains and the corn and then the sugar that's in the corn that's been converted. Yes. But that's only because I've been tasting whiskey so long. You sure. know, when I taste something that's an 80 proof, I'm kind of like, it's- You can't taste it. Like, it doesn't taste, it, of course it tastes like whiskey, but to me, it's sweetened up quite a bit at that point because they've added so much water that the, um, and the chemistry of it is, is that they're starting, that you're, you're inflating everything with, you're adding more hydration. Right. So basically you're just tasting the sweetness instead of all of the um, herbaceousness of the grain or, um, or more of the complexity of the corns that are used in the mash. And, and that's the short answer. What do you think? Yeah, no, I love that. And, and you know. That's the short answer. So, so you, want, you want hydration in your skin, but not in your whiskey. You exactly. want hydration in between your overproofed um, drinks. Yeah, you got yeah, and, and, lots of water in your glass in between those. And, and let's, <laughs> let's bring back, because I, I will always bring back water chemistry, that the fact that the flavor of our water that we, that we proof with, that water chemistry matters. I think you said you're using a, a, a 114 proof bourbon today, which is 57% alcohol, but the other 43% of what's occupying that bottle is water. And the way that water tastes like totally matters. We're uh, raising funds now for a vodka brand that uh, I built and I'm starting called Blind Truth Beverage. So I'm a chemist and I'm a super nerd. And I said like, dude, we can make our own water that's been filtered for years and that has all these amazing minerals in it. Yeah. So I took water, just standard, whatever city water you want to talk about, Los Angeles city water, just fill in the blank and run it through a good reverse osmosis system and bring the concentration of total dissolved, sol dissolved solids from anywhere around 400 down to zero. Ooh. And then <laughs> we've created our own proprietary mineral blend that we add back into the water and reconstituted up to like 350, 400 of total dissolved solids, solids by the way, that's parts per million. Wow. And create this beautiful, smooth texture that's absolutely perfect on the palate with vodka, gin, and other clears. So my point is that like, we can, we can do our own water chemistry if we want to and create flavor. So you're basically distilling the water first. You're doing vacuum distillation on it. Totally. Yeah. So you're, Totally. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So you're just you're so you're you're changing the um the the the, the entry to it. It's got to be cheaper too right. to run the vacuum distillation on the water. I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't right. be. That's interesting. No, it is. It is. It's it's a cost saver as opposed to getting this, you know, brilliant water that's been filtered for a thousand years. Anyway, <laughs> this is like we're gonna do our own thing and. And like you say, like, thank you for that education on what a bonded whiskey is, because I, I needed that. All right. So this is one of my, like, this is a really simple cocktail, but it's super um, uh, complicated and it is an overproof cocktail. So when you are imbibing these, just make sure that you do have a glass of water on the side and shaking this drink is actually going to be very important. All right. So we're going to add um, for each uh, cocktail, you're going to do two ounces of your whiskey, um, anything bonded or overproofed. I'm actually going to use the um, old overhaul 114. And then we're gonna add one ounce um, of chartreuse and we're using the green chartreuse. And the reason why I chose the chartreuse and this is a fun game for you, um, Hobie, is that 
Chartreuse, yellow or green, is made up, and they say, of over 116 or 114 herbs, depending on Good the two Lord. kinds. And nobody has been able to guess whatever, what's in it, right? So, like, I went through one time, I was like, I, I got a, um, a list of, like, all of the herbs and stuff that grow in the region of where Chartreuse is from. And I'm like, it's got to be these, because where the hell are they walking to, to gather yeah. all of this? <laughs> and then they went through it, and they're like, some of it, and then some of it's not. And then I'm like, what's yellow that makes green? That would be blue, you know, yellow and blue make green, yep. right? So it was naturally happening during, you know, the 1600s when the monks were making it. It had to have been two more ingredients. Like, I spent a lot of time <laughs> being obsessed with this. And I, and I, my only, my only guess is that there had to have been pea tendrils in this mix in order for it to react with the, uh, with the, um, cause the pea tendrils, although they look green, have an enormous amount of um, chlorophyll, which turns blue. Oh. So in distillation. So I'm thinking it had to change to make these two colors. So I said this once at a seminar and they were like, did you ever work for Shushu? I'm like, I did not. They're like, so you maybe you should just mind your own business. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, yes, it's pea tendrils. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, I, I totally get you. I love it. All right, anyway. I don't know that much about chartreuse, but I, it's, I know that it's like a, it's in a kind of an aperitif. It's a, it's a blend of herbs and spices. Like, but it's, is it, does it have to come from France? The one that I have comes from France. It has to come from France. It only comes from one place in the world. It comes from an abbey still made by monks. Oh my gosh. And it is made in France. And there was a time period during World War One into World War II where they were not producing chartreuse. So people that have vintage bottles of chartreuse from that era, because it was chartreuse was called Eau de Vie. Um, it, was a, it was an Eau de Vie and it would have been on the bottle. It said like 19, you know, I don't know, 1930s are really, really valuable um, because they stopped making everything. Um, if you ever see them anywhere, you buy them. If you ever see them on auction, you get them if you can afford it. Wow. <laughs> they're absolutely wonderful and delicious. And that's what chartreuse really tasted like. It's a little bit different now, but you know, they started making this in 1605 and the recipe's never changed. That's so. crazy. All right. So here we go. So if you're listening to this, we got two ounces of, we got two ounces of our, um, overholds 114. We have one ounce of our chartreuse. We're going to add one ounce of grapefruit juice. Now here's the deal. If you use pink grapefruit juice, which I'm using, um, you're going to get a, a slightly sweeter product. If you use white grapefruit juice, you're going to get a slightly drier product. Both are delicious. So then we're going to take the ice, and you're going to take the ice and put it in your shaker. This drink is a really, it's just three ingredients. Great, your glass is chilled. We're going to shake. Is this a proper way to shake a drink, Gina, is what I'm doing here? Put, your, put two hands on your shaker, tin and then make your arms at a 90 degree angle. And you want to shake up, uh, like over your shoulder. Like, yep, now shake. Yes, yes, that is good form. We learn, we learn, we learn. Perfect. And then when it gets really cold and you can't hold it anymore, the drink is done. How about that? Okay. Well, I'm cheating, guys. Uh, you know, by the way, what I love about podcasts is that are audio only is everybody's blind. So I'm just explaining to you. I'm cheating. <laughs> Gina's doing the beautiful thing with her strainer and like she's got everything beautifully set up. And I've, I've got my my shaker has a little built in strainer. No, I love those. Are you kidding? Those are my favorite. <laughs> Listen, I don't do everything super fancy at home, right? <laughs> All right. So this drink does not generally call for, you know, a garnish. But today we're going to use... Uh, just a touch of um, 
your rosemary salt blend and we'll taste and we'll taste it. It's a, it's the essentials rosemary salt blend. And he says on there, use sparingly. And when I say that we're going to use less than a pinch, we're going to use basically just like a, a few sprinkles across the top to get the aromatics and a little bit of the bitter. Nice. Okay, yeah. so I'm, wow, I love that. I actually use Maldon, that's what I was told, so I'm just gonna pinch a little Maldon. The Maldon sea salt is one of my favorites. You only wanna use two flakes of that. One of my favorite things about Maldon salt is that it is a pyramid salt, and a pyramid salt is just that, as a structure, and it's the way that it's um, made and then harvested. Oh my but gosh. But when you have it, it has a beautiful, like, crunch in food. Oh my God, Gina, I just smelled this cocktail. Oh, this is heaven. Like, it's a combination of of course, the beautiful bourbon, but like the the way the chartreuse comes out here and just pops in the glass is absolute heaven. I mean, it just like explodes in your face. Thank you. See, chartreuse is new to you. I love it. Oh, I, I, I yeah, it's totally new. And what I'm smelling here is like this amazing, almost slightly medicinal uh, combination of roots and herbs, and then the the whiskey, the the oak sort of toasty caramel from the whiskey you know coming in from the from the oak and then the grapefruit like it just complements it just adds that you know people who, who hear about grapefruit think about bitter and you can all smell the bitter in this drink and it's just gorgeous ah, so excited <laughs> you know you know if you if you drink with Hobie, you almost don't even need to drink. You just kind of like sit with him and just listen. I know. I love it. Hey, to, to all the listeners, I will drive while you drink. It's no problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Gina, you are a, you are a, a, a master of this. Oh, thank you. Oh, my God. Um. So if you want the recipe, so for our listeners, if you want to hear um, – if you missed that or you missed any of the tips or tricks or how-tos or um, also where to get Hobie's um, rosemary, sea salt, uh, you can go to designateddrinker.show. And again, if you didn't hear me, that is designateddrinker.show. And you could also just scroll up in your uh, episode notes and all of those links will be there as well. So there you go. All right. So if you listened to our show before, then you'll know the last question. So in this day and age, everybody identifies themselves with some sort of... Um, animal or mythical creature and you might identify yourself with a dragon because you know they're majestic and they fly through the air and they can blow fire and they're, they could change the chemical makeup from water to steam whatever and, and just one foul <laughs> swoop right if you can identify yourself as one ingredient either for cocktail or food what would it be and why i love this question i am paprika and in particular, I, I do have some roots in Austria-Hungary, so I can be Hungarian paprika. And what I love about Hungarian paprika is it, it adds color, it adds something really fun, it adds spice, yeah. but it has a deep richness. It has a, like a really crazy like quality to it that's almost, you can't quite talk about it because it's like, it's just sort of there. You know when you smell a bag of paprika and you get a combination of roasted dried pepper and um, that that nice sort of sort of almost doughy aroma, but but it's like so rich and um, kind of burns your nostrils a little. So you kind of get, have to get to know it. But then you put it in a cocktail or in a in a dish, and it just transforms. It, it makes the dish like 
it doesn't transform anything by itself, but with other flavors, it just it just totally lifts things. And what I like to think of myself as, if I can, is a lifter of what people do and how they think. But I I I, I don't I need other people, other ingredients. If if we're now anthropomorphizing ourselves as ingredients to to lift things and. Paprika just just does so much on, on its own, but it does so much more when it's with other ingredients. So um, chicken paprika, if you think about that dish, like that's the, awesome. Yeah, the paprika is great, but it wouldn't be that way without the chicken. And <laughs> I so wouldn't be who I am without my peers and mentors who are just so there and such amazing people in every sense of the word and imagination. That's that's what I love. That's awesome. That is awesome. You know, I wish I got that much when I opened a bag of paprika. I just get the sneezes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't want to make people sneeze. <laughs> it's up to Maybe I tickle it's everyone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, Cheers, this was Holly. such an amazing time. Thank yes. you for sharing your insights and your amazing oh. just soul and your essence. Thank you for bringing so much to the show today. You guys are awesome. And Gina, I'm sorry, like I interrupted you a few times while you're making your drink. No. I'm just a curious nerd. I can't help myself. <laughs> no, I like it. Nerd to nerd. I'm totally in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to you both. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.